Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Blue House with a Black Eagle. Blue House with a Black Eagle. Where the hell was it? That house had become Akron's obsession. Everybody looked for it. Postal workers, taxi drivers, ham radio operators, everybody. Perhaps no one was more obsessed with finding that house than Officer Gus Hall. He was fairly new to the force in his third year, and he was hungry. He'd work his shift, then spend hours of his own time looking for just the right freedom flyer that would lead him to what could be a huge break in the Cottle case. To be clear, officers in medium and large-sized cities do not normally work cases on their own time. But Gus Hall did. He was motivated by Phyllis's courage and the urgent need to get a dangerous man off the streets. It was 7 a.m. on a Thursday morning when Officer Hall pulled up to the umpteenth address of a blue house, this one on Grant Street. He looked at it intently. It was the right color, a bright, rather garish potter blue. The eaves were white, and there was a black eagle flying high above and between the second floor windows. It all fit. Officer Hall got out of his car. He stood in the driveway, surveyed the landscape, from the police reports. Officer Hall stated, quote, I stood in front of this house and looked for homes that were inside of this blue house. I noted two houses on Bellows Street, end quote. Both houses on Bellows Street were the right cream color. Could one of them be the house? Hall had checked out so many properties on West North Street, Mall Avenue, Fifth Street, Crestview, The list went on and on, and each time, no go. Either the house wasn't vacant or it wasn't two streets away from the blue one. But as Gus Hall stood in the driveway of this particular blue house, he had a feeling. Hall climbed back into his patrol car and headed toward Bellows Street. The houses shared a driveway. The first house had been condemned. Good, he thought. That meant it was most likely vacant. Officer Hall peered through the window. Hmm, no green carpet, no electrical wire, no nothing. As in none of the items inside the house matched what the victim said she saw. Damn. He walked over to the house next door. It was a two and a half story wood framed house with light gray peeling paint. The lower half of the house was painted a yellowish color. From the police reports. Quote, I noted at the time there were no footprints in the snow anywhere around the house. The steps leading to the rear of the address had fresh snow on them and no footprints, end quote. A good sign. No footprints, no occupants. Hall noticed the electric and telephone wires had been cut. He noted the top half of a broken bottle on the porch. It appeared to contain a dry, dark, pinkish substance. He checked his notes. The victim said the suspect cut her bindings with a glass bottle and threw the remnants outside. 
interesting, he thought. He knocked on the front door. No answer. All of the windows were covered with curtains, some opaque, others not so much. He walked to the back of the house from an affidavit. Quote, I noted I could see a house located at Grant Street and that the Grant Street house was blue with white trim and a black eagle emblem. End quote. I don't know how Gus Hall felt at that moment, but my adrenaline would have been pumping. He put his forehead on one of the windows and cupped his eyes to look inside the house and saw nothing. Hall pulled back from the window and looked up with a start. A man had come out of a nearby house. He told the officer that the house had been vacant for about a year. It was owned by a guy named Bruce who lived over on Sherman. He drove a red and blue Pontiac. Officer Hall needed to find this guy. Maybe he would let him in the house without a warrant. So Hall called for patrol officers to look for a red and blue Pontiac parked at a house on Sherman Street. No luck. He needed to get inside that house. Four more officers joined him on Bellows. One of them checked out a boarded up window on the south side of the house. The boards were loose. He pulled them off and hoisted Gus Hall up on his shoulder so he could look inside. Hall shined a flashlight through the now open window. And there it was dark green carpeting in a one-room wide room, just as Phyllis had described. He shined the flashlight around the room and, oh, oh my freaking God. About the jack. I was in the corner. It looked like a bumper jack. There was a bumper jack in the corner. It was all there. The green carpeting, the broken bottle, the steps that led up to the porch with no backs, lengths of rope, and that blue house with the black eagle that you could definitely see if you sat on a bench on the porch. It all matched. At 8.19 a.m., Officer Hall radioed the detective bureau. I found it, he said. I found it. I'm Carol Costello. This is Blind Rage, Episode 8, Blue House, Black Eagle. Word was out on the street about Sammy Herring, and those who knew Herring did not seem surprised that he could have attacked that poor woman. Anonymous calls about Herring flooded police lines. A fifth-grade teacher told detectives one of her 10-year-old students said he and his mom visited the Herring residence and heard Herring tell his family that he was the person who stabbed that lady and raped her. There were other calls, too, from Black women, calls that broke your heart. One call in particular interested detectives. A woman claimed Herring dated her sister and caused her to suffer a nervous breakdown. She had to leave town to get away from him. If that caller told the truth, their pretty good suspect would become a great suspect. Herring had never served time for rape or sexual assault. The most violent crimes he was convicted of involved men. So detectives dug deep. I know that because I'm looking at documents from a psychiatric hospital in Summit County, Ohio. The documents are dated March 4th, 1984, 16 days before Phyllis was carjacked. A woman, I'll call Sarah, tried to kill herself because she'd been raped three years ago and that recently she had an argument with her boyfriend who was violent toward her. She was so deathly afraid of that boyfriend she would have rather died than deal with him ever again. 
Sarah was released eight days later and fled to Detroit to hide out with her children. The father of at least one of those children was Samuel Herring. As far as I can determine, Sarah never filed charges against Herring or any other man. I'm not surprised, not at all surprised. And neither is Judge Irma Brown, who served as a Superior Court judge for 39 years. She was a young lawyer back in the 80s who worked at the Greater Watts Justice Center of the Legal Aid Foundation of L.A. She also co-founded the Black Women Lawyers Association. Victims, I think, for years were sort of stereotyped and brainwashed into believing that there was some fault involved with it and that it was deserving, it was an adequate punishment for some kind of mishap during a relationship. And to make it public was a further, like a scarlet letter, so to speak, that you allowed this to happen to you, and so you, you bear some fault. Yeah, it was legal to rape your wife in 1984. And it wasn't until 1994 that Congress recognized domestic violence as a national crime. I also uncovered documents that detail what happened to a woman I'll call Glory. It's an inter-office report to the parole board. It's dated September 11th, 1978. It alleges Samuel Herring beat her and attempted to choke her son. In this instance, Glory did report Herring to parole board authorities. But as far as I can determine, nothing happened. Remember, Herring was released on parole in 1978 only to commit a violent crime and be sentenced again before being paroled again just months before Phyllis was attacked. Here's Judge Brown. Was that unusual? I don't think that it was unusual at all. Those were not the kinds of things that were just generally reported. And if they were, it was black on black. I don't even know that they looked at it as crime. It was just just a kind of a cultural thing. But that's the way that people kind of relate to each other. And so you just... Wait, wait, they, what? That's, okay, so that's shitty. (laughs) So they really did look at it as a cultural thing and something not to be taken so seriously? I think so. Violence domestic violence in the African-American community was not really considered as a crime. It might have been on the books as so, but domestic violence was not treated like it is today. And so you just sort of went out and gave a warning and don't do that. And you moved on to the next time. But this time, detectives needed these women to bolster their case against Samuel Herring to maybe testify against him. But it was not to be. Glory eventually agreed to talk to police, but only with an officer who grew up in her neighborhood. I don't know what happened after that. More when we return. Join James Woolner on a journey through a gripping true crime tale. James is a talented storyteller. He has a way of exploring cases with compassion. His stories are deeply researched. James does the hard work. He talks to victims' family members, law enforcement, and even the perpetrator's family. He helps us understand that crime touches us in different ways, painful ways, but ways that are important for us to understand. I think you could describe Dakota Spotlight as an expert blend of storytelling, investigative journalism, and thorough research. But where to start? 
Well, I would start with season nine, the Mandan murders. James takes us on a roller coaster ride of emotion. Set in Mandan, North Dakota, this nine-part series offers listeners a profound journey into the depths of the human experience amidst tragedy. James even talks with the family of the convicted killer, Chad Isaac. Trust me, this story will touch you. Give Dakota Spotlight a listen. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. On March 24th, four days after Phyllis's attack, four hours after Gus Hall found the house on Bellow Street, police secured a warrant to go inside. An Akron detective shouted, all clear, and kicked in the locked front door. It was the only way in unless you climbed through that boarded up window in the back of the house. The assembled search team that included detectives Contos Moss and officer Gus Hall streamed into the house and stop to soak it all in. Inside and out, it was almost exactly as Phyllis Cottle had described. And when they surveyed the landscape, what she told them made perfect sense. The way he went in, he left her outside in the car and then on the back porch. He went in and came in through the, the window. She could see green carpeting and she said the house smelled musty. There was a jack in there. A little chest of drawers with glass on top, an old coffee pot, broken glass on the floor. She's telling us all this stuff, and we get the house, and it's all in there. And that's great. <laughs> but it's nothing if you don't get the house. Like I was saying, if there's any one thing missing, like let's say she had to see in the blue house with the white trim and the eagle. We still be lost. <laughs> While detectives gathered evidence inside the house, outside, a horde of spectators had gathered to gawk at one of the most sought-after homes in Akron for all the wrong reasons. Reporters were there, too. A lot of them. It was madness. Every time reporters spotted a cop, we shouted out questions. They ignored us. They had to. Top brass had laid down the law. Absolutely no one, including the public information officer, was allowed to talk to the press. In the meantime, street officers and other detectives work their sources. And those sources, even sources who were hardened criminals, talked. They told police that Bellow Street House was used as an after-hours joint. Lots of people stopped by to drink, to gamble, and to do whatever. And then, and then lightning struck. Sometimes you just get lucky. And sometimes you have a survivor who just nails it. That musty-smelling, dilapidated house two streets away from a blue house with a black eagle belonged to a family named Herring. Specifically, Bruce Herring, who had a brother named Samuel, as in Samuel, 
a.k.a. Sammy Herring. Bada bing. Detectives could now tie Samuel Herring to the crime scene. And they had witnesses who were fairly sure Herring had been the man in the 1286 bar near Phyllis's burned-out car. They had proof he showed up late to the parole board, proof he carried a gym bag. They still couldn't put Herring on West Exchange Street where the crime originated, and they still had no physical evidence. Police were eager to make an arrest, but Fred Zook, who was the chief of the trial division in the prosecutor's office, the guy who had the authority to give cops the green light, he wasn't so sure. I thought the evidence was light, but I figured it wasn't going to get any better. But after three days, Zook said, go for it. On March 27, 1984, seven days after Phyllis was carjacked in broad daylight on a warm pre-spring day, police descended on a suspect. The arrest went down at Herring's sister's house. Bruce Herring, the man who owned the alleged rape house, had just dropped off his brother to get a pair of boots so they could ride Sammy's motorcycle. In seconds, both were surrounded by 15 police officers. Up against the car, they shouted. In Herring's words, those officers were armed to the hilt with shotguns and pistols, all pointed right at him. Back at WAKR, we knew something was up. The scanner traffic had gone ballistic, and a source of mine called me with a cryptic message. Go stand by the elevators downtown. I grabbed my reporter's notebook, a photographer, and sped to the Akron PD. I stood outside the elevator, and I was not alone. Other reporters had been tipped off, too. The elevator doors opened. We surged forward, and there he was the monster who allegedly attacked a 44-year-old woman who had already attained otherworldly status. He looked so normal, except that he was surrounded by cops, cuffed, silent. Cameras flashed, questions were shouted out. It was controlled chaos, and I won't lie. I was exhilarated, thrilled, relieved, not remotely objective. I often wonder how Phyllis felt when police cuffed the man who allegedly brutalized her. I wished I had asked her that question. I know rage had fueled her memories and helped put Herring in the back of that police car. But afterwards, that white-hot anger faded into despair. And that was the thing that nearly killed Phyllis Cottle. Next week, what is there to live for? She went in the bathroom and she just started crying uncontrollably. And because she was crying, she was trembling and she was just so upset, she dropped the pills on the floor and she's like, oh, great. Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage is a signature show of the Killer Podcast Network. If you enjoy this series, please subscribe and rate it on your favorite listening apps and discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. And if you want to discover more about this case, follow me on Instagram at Carol Costello. You'll find pictures of Phyllis, newspaper reports, crime scene photos, and more. Blind Rage is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Carol Costello. This episode was produced by Chris Iola and me, Carol Costello. Additional thanks to audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, contributor Nyjah Galladay, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Original music is composed by Timothy Law Snyder. Our voice of the court is Douglas F. Bailey II. 
All of the information in this podcast came from my memories of the event. Phyllis Cottle, her family members and friends, former law enforcement, prosecutors, former and current journalists, police reports, and court documents. I've tried to tell this story factually to the best of my ability, but sometimes memory fails. It's been a long time, but my goal is simple. Phyllis was an amazing woman, and her story of courage should be shared. Through terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.